0: Everybody out there in podcast land, it says Chris, the public safety guru, a.k.a. the EMT tutor, bringing you this exciting announcement. I have revamped memberships and you can now access exclusive content, which includes quizzes, practice tests, block exams, practice final exams, study guides and other resources for the low cost of $4.99 a month. And when you're done with your EMT program or taking the National Registry exam, you can cancel. Now, you can join from your favorite podcast app, but it's best if you do it from Spotify or our Patreon channel. If you join from your podcast app, all you need to do is send me an email to Guru at gmail.com letting me know that you signed up. But if you do it from Patreon, I get instant notification which grants you instant access to our Google Drive which has all of these resources including the ad-free version of this podcast. But wait, here is the most exciting part. When you subscribe, you get access to our all new Discord channel which allows you to have interaction with me where you can ask me specific questions as it relates to your EMT program or prepping for the National Registry exam. But let's just say you just have that question where you're not understanding something. Well, we can answer that question through Discord, and that's what I'm really excited about. And last, you can interact with this EMT community and help each other. All right, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, at the EMT Tutor, and I almost forgot, if you're looking for us at Patreon, Search for the EMT tutor. All right, let's get on with your learning. Today, we're gonna be focusing on shock. And in my, I should say, teaching travels experiences, shock seems to be one of those topics that really confuses students. And yet, it's really something very simple, but I think us as instructors and the books and the lectures, really just make shock very confusing. So we're gonna break this down and put it into those small nuggets that will help you to digest what shock actually is. Let me give you an example how we like to confuse you. When we ask you those test questions, we will tell you that your patient is in shock. However, we won't use the word shock. What will we use? Well, we'll call it poor perfusion, or we'll call it hypoperfusion. You see what I mean? Instead of just calling a duck a duck, for some reason, we just want to focus on all of these other words and just not call it what it is, shock. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is all that shock is, poor tissue perfusion. Quite simply, it just means that the body's tissues, organs, cells are not getting enough oxygenated blood. It is that simple. Now, shock is caused by various different mechanisms. Back when I started, we had to learn the nine different shocks. Today, it's been more simplified and those nine have been condensed down into the ones that we're going to cover today. Ladies and gentlemen, before we get started, I want to remind you, check us out on Instagram at the Tutor. Don't forget to come on over to our webpage, thepublicsafetyguru.com. And last, if you want to support this podcast for yourself and future listeners, jump on over to our Patreon channel, which will provide you exclusive content. And that will be Patreon, and it's going to be at the EMT Tutor as well. And you can find that link in the description of this podcast. All right, let's now get to a little shock. The knowledge domains for this lecture are you as the EMT student should be able to describe the pathophysiology of shock. You should also identify the causes of shock, and you should know the differences between the different types of shock. You also should understand and be able to describe the signs and symptoms of shock, including those signs and symptoms for compensated shock and decompensated shock. You also should know the key components to the patient assessment So you could identify shock while doing that assessment. And last the emergency care that will either prevent your patient from going into shock or possibly treat that shock, making that shock less of a problem during your patient care. All right, let's jump into this. So shock, hypoperfusion is the state of collapse and failure of the cardiovascular system. In the early stages of shock, the body will attempt to compensate by maintaining its homeostasis. Remember, that's the balance of all systems in the body. Now shock can be caused in a medical emergency or a traumatic emergency. To understand shock, we must first understand perfusion. Adequate perfusion is required to provide cells, oxygen, and nutrients and remove the waste products. Any compromise to perfusion, can lead to cellular injury and or death, if not corrected. Now, the way most things move around in our body is through a process called diffusion. Diffusion is a passive process in which molecules move from an area with higher concentration to an area of lower concentration. This is exactly how oxygen and carbon dioxide are exchanged in the walls of the alveoli. You have those red blood cells, that have no oxygen and then we breathe in and that high concentration of oxygen wants to go to that lower place of concentration. And then that's where the exchange takes place. But that same blood cell has so much carbon dioxide. It wants to go to a place where there's less carbon dioxide and then that's how we exhale. This is what happens with every breath we take. The majority of the oxygen that the body uses, is actually carried on hemoglobin as far as carbon dioxide carbon dioxide can be transported in the blood from the tissues back to the lungs in three ways the first way is it's dissolved in the plasma the second way is it's combined with water to form bicarbonate or third it's attached to the hemoglobin now the interesting part about the co2 that becomes bicarbonate is that When it reaches the lungs, the bicarbonate is broken down again into carbon dioxide and water, and the carbon dioxide is exhaled. Now, in cases of poor perfusion, shock, the transportation of carbon dioxide out of the tissues will become impaired, resulting in a dangerous buildup of waste products that may cause cellular damage. Now, if you're listening to this lecture, you have already learned that shock can lead to death. And once again, shock is that state of collapse and failure of the cardiovascular system that leads to inadequate circulation. Now our body is a wonderful machine. It has the ability to be able to compensate. So when our body starts to sense it's going into shock, the body is able to shift blood from the areas of the body that can withstand that and send that blood to the areas that cannot tolerate low blood flow, such as the heart, brain, and lungs. Now, as far as the areas of the body that can go without that adequate blood perfusion for a while, that would be the skin and the intestines. Now it's very imperative you as the EMT recognize the signs and symptoms of shock, because that's what's going to save someone's life. Let's have a little refresher about the cardiovascular system. Remember the cardiovascular system consists of three parts the heart, which is the pump, blood vessels, which are the container, and blood, which is the content. These three parts are often referred to as the perfusion triangle. When a patient is in shock, one or more of these three parts is not working properly. Okay, now let's switch on over to blood pressure. Remember, blood pressure is the pressure of blood within the vessels at any moment in time. The systolic pressure is the peak arterial pressure or pressure generated every time the heart contracts. Diastolic pressure is the pressure maintained within the arteries while the heart rests between heartbeats. Pulse pressure is the difference between the systolic and diastolic pressures. And the formula for that would be systolic minus diastolic equals pulse pressure. You will have to memorize that for National Registry. Systolic minus diastolic equals pulse pressure. Now let's get a little crazy with some advanced EMT knowledge. Blood flows through the capillary beds which is regulated by the capillary sphincters. Capillary sphincters are circular muscular walls that constrict and dilate. These sphincters are under control of the autotomic nervous system. Capillary sphincters also respond to other stimuli such as heat, cold, the need for oxygen, and the need for waste removal. Regulation of blood flow is determined by cellular needs. Perfusion requires more than just having a working cardiovascular system. It also requires adequate oxygen in the lungs, adequate nutrients in the form of glucose in the blood, as well as adequate waste removal, which is primarily through the lungs. There are mechanisms in place in the body that support the respiratory and cardiovascular systems when the need for perfusion of the vital organs is increased. These mechanisms include the autotomic nervous system and hormones. The sympathetic side of the autotomic nervous system, which is responsible for fight-or-flight response, will assume more control of the body's functions during a state of shock. This response by the autotomic nervous system causes the release of hormones such as epinephrine and norepinephrine. Hormones cause an increase in heart rate and in the strength of the cardiac contractions as well as vasoconstriction in non-essential areas, primarily in the skin and gastrointestinal tract. This would be considered peripheral vasoconstriction. It is this response that actually gives us the signs and symptoms of shock for our patients. Okay, now we're gonna switch gears and talk a little bit about the causes of shock, which is very brief. What you just need to take away from this is that there are many different types of shock that result from three basic causes. That is pump failure, poor vessel function, or low fluid volume. Now we're gonna break down the different types of shock, starting off with cardiogenic shock. Cardiogenic shock is caused by inadequate function of the heart or pump failure. A major effect is the backup of blood into the lungs. The resulting buildup of pulmonary fluid is called pulmonary edemia. Cardiogenic shock develops when the heart cannot maintain sufficient output to meet the demands of the body. Cardiac output is the volume of blood that the heart can pump per minute and is dependent upon several factors. Those factors are the following. The heart must have adequate strength for the heart muscle to contract. This is called myocardial contractility. The second is the heart must receive adequate blood to pump. And last, the resistance to flow in the peripheral circulation must be appropriate. This is cardiogenic shock. Remember, cardiogenic. So it has to deal with the heart. So anything that causes heart failure that leads to shock, that would be cardiogenic shock. Now let's talk a little bit about obstructive shock because this is where I find students get a little confused as they're unable to differentiate between cardiogenic shock and obstructive shock. Now obstructive shock is caused by a mechanical obstruction that prevents an adequate volume of blood from filling the heart chambers. Three of the most common examples are a cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax or pulmonary embolus. Now let's break this down so you can finally figure out or be able to figure out the difference between cardiogenic shock and obstructive shock. In using the example of cardiac tamponade, we have the sac that surrounds the heart that becomes damaged and begins to fill with blood. Well, the heart's pumping fine. The heart wants to work. But this sac starts to fill with more and more blood and basically the heart is no longer able to pump against this resistance. The pump is working fine, it's just that something is causing failure somewhere else. So this is obstructive shock. Or if we look at the tension pneumothorax, as the lung begins to collapse it starts moving upward and upward eventually headed towards the heart and it finally gets to that area where now the heart is unable to pump against that collapsed lung. Once again, the pump is working fine. The pump wants to work, but it can't work because something is obstructing it. That is the differences between obstructive shock and cardiogenic shock, which is actually once again, pump failure. If you could wrap your head around that, you should be able to differentiate during test taking. Now let's jump into distributive shock. Distributive shock results when there is widespread dilation of small arterioles, small venules, or both. In other words, something has happened to the pipes. Now, in distributive shock, what ends up happening due to this widespread dilation, the blood just sits and pools in the expanded vascular area. The pump is working fine, we have plenty of fluid, but this widespread vessel dilation is causing our problem now there are a lot of reasons why someone could have or be in distributive shock number one they could be septic they could have a neurogenic problem anaphylaxis or psychogenic and remember when i told you that i learned nine different shocks well this is how we got to nine is each one of those was broken down into its own shock But today, we put all of these causes under distributive shock. In septic shock, due to the sepsis, it causes the widespread dilation. In neurogenic shock, something has injured the spine, causing the vessels to now dilate. In anaphylactic shock, the actual allergic reaction is causing the dilation. And in psychogenic shock, due to something happening with the basically the mind and think of a fainting spell we just had a quick widespread vessel dilation which caused the body to faint so this is all this all falls under distributive shock now one of the ones that you're going to see more frequently will be hypovolemic shock hypovolemic shock is the result of the inadequate amount of fluid or volume in the circulatory system this is our gunshots our stabbings Uh, burns, these are the categories that we would have someone in hypovolemic shock. So remember, when we have someone who has massive fluid loss, think hypovolemic shock. Now we need to talk about respiratory insufficiency. Under respiratory insufficiency, there are three reasons which may be causing a patient not to have enough oxygen. The first one is when a patient has a severe chest injury such as a flail chest or obstruction of the airway, which may inhibit the patient from breathing in an adequate amount of oxygen. The second one could be when the patient is anemic. This causes the tissue to be hypoxic because there's an inadequate amount of red blood cells to deliver oxygen to the other cells. The third one is certain types of poisoning may affect the ability for the cells to metabolize and carry oxygen and it could be carbon monoxide poisoning or even cyanide poisoning. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the types of shock and which causes them. Now let's talk about the progression of shock. There are different stages and we're going to discuss those right now. The first stage of shock or progression is compensated shock. Quite simply, the body is compensating. However, the body will eventually get to a point where it becomes decompensated shock. This is when shock has progressed too far. It is irreversible and there's no way to access when a patient has reached this point. It is imperative to recognize and treat shock early well before the patient transitions into the decompensated phase. In my opinion, The first compensatory mechanism of when someone is going to shock is tachycardia. A lot of people like to rely on blood pressure, but the thing that you got to rely on blood pressure or remember about blood pressure is that blood pressure may be the last measurable factor to change in shock. In other words, it could be the last thing that happens when someone is finally progressing to that decompensated shock. I'm a big proponent of skin signs. When someone is pale, cool, diaphoretic, you need to immediately start treating them for shock now let's get back to blood pressure when the pressure finally drops shock has been well developed and your patient may be now in decompensated shock this is particularly true in infants and children who can maintain their blood pressure until they have lost enough blood which can be about half of their blood volume and then it makes itself known to you by that time when the blood pressure finally drops, your patients are in shock and very close to death. So remember that blood pressure is not the best indicator to help you decide if your patient is in shock or not in shock. You should always expect shock in emergency medical situations. I know we always think about shock and trauma, but there are medical emergencies which also will put your patient into shock. Also expect shock in the patient if they have one of the following conditions multiple severe fractures, abdominal or chest injury, spinal injury, a severe infection, a major heart attack, and anaphylaxis. In regards to assessing your patient for shock, you have to take your patient assessment lecture into account. This is one of the reasons why it's very important to know the signs and symptoms of shock, as well as when to perform a rapid medical assessment or a rapid trauma assessment. If we go back to that primary assessment, this is why we're looking for major blood loss. If we see it, then we correct it immediately. Or you may come across that injury, which is life threatening that you need to correct immediately. So refer back to your patient assessment lecture, and that should help you to talk about the patient assessment and trying to assess if your patient's in shock. Now let's talk about the emergency care for shock. If you believe your patient is in shock, you need to begin immediate treatment for that shock. First, follow your standard precautions. Two, control all obvious external bleeding. Three, make sure the patient has an open airway. Four, maintain manual inline stabilization if necessary and check breathing and pulse. Five, comfort, calm, and reassure the patient while maintaining the patient in the supine position. Never allow your patients to eat or drink anything prior to being evaluated by a physician. If spinal immobilization is indicated, splint the patient on a backboard. Remember that inadequate ventilation may be a major factor in the development of shock. Always provide oxygen or assist with ventilations and use airway control adjuncts as needed. To prevent the loss of body heat, place blankets under and over the patient but try to help the patient maintain a normal body temperature. Transport the patient and treat additional injuries in route. Consider ALS or possibly air ops. Do not give the patient anything by mouth and you need to reassess your patient every five minutes as they're critical. Okay. Now we're going to start breaking down the treatment to specific shocks, and we're going to be starting off with treating cardiogenic shock. The patient who is in shock as a result of a heart attack does not have the power to pump blood throughout the circulatory system. Chronic lung disease will aggravate cardiogenic shock. Usually patients with cardiogenic shock do not have any injury, but they may be having chest pain. Patients in cardiogenic shock should not receive nitroglycerin. By definition, they are hypotensive. Once again, you need to evaluate their signs and symptoms. Place the patient in a position that eases breathing as you give high-flow oxygen. Initiate prompt transport. Ensure ALS is in route. And consider arranging to meet up with ALS since your patient is critical if you have to transport immediately. Alright, now let's jump into treating obstructive shock. We're going to focus first on cardiac tamponade. Increasing cardiac output should be the priority in treating cardiac tamponade. So this is why we will apply high-flow oxygen. The only treatment that is going to save this patient's life will be surgery. Now let's switch gears and hop on over to tension pneumothorax, which is also part of obstructive shock. We're going to administer high-flow oxygen via a non-rebreather mask early to prevent hypoxia. Chest decompression is required to relieve the pressure in the chest. Now remember, chest decompression is an advanced life-saving skill. So it's going to be ALS, i.e. your paramedics. So once again, make sure ALS is responding. If your patient is so critical that you feel that you should start transport, then make arrangements to meet ALS somewhere between the scene and the hospital. All right, now we're going to talk about treating septic shock. Unfortunately, in the emergency setting, there's not much we can do for septic shock. Septic shock will be treated in the hospital, and it's a very complex treatment. It takes a bunch of antibiotics, and there are actually specialists who deal with septic shock. For us, what we're going to do is we're going to use the appropriate standard precautions and transport the patient promptly. We're going to administer high-flow oxygen during transport and support any ventilations as needed and preserve body heat. This is all that we really can do for septic shock, ladies and gentlemen, as well as treat the other signs and symptoms. All right, we're now going to jump into neurogenic shock. Our treatment will be focused on obtaining and maintaining a proper airway and providing spinal immobilization. We will assist with any inadequate breathing as needed, and we will do everything we can to conserve body heat. We're going to be trying to ensure the most effective circulation is taking place in our patients. We will transport the patient promptly to a facility capable of managing the spinal injuries, most likely a trauma center. Alright, anaphylactic shock. The only real effective treatment for this severe acute allergic reaction is to administer epinephrine by the way of intramuscular injection. And this is something that paramedics can do. We may be able to do it if the patient has an EpiPen. A patient with anaphylaxis requires immediate transport. Additional emergency care will include high-flow oxygen via a non-rebreather mask and, if necessary, assist with ventilations with the BVM if necessary. We try to find what agent is causing the reaction as the hospitals may have counter medications to help with patient care. When dealing with those patients that are in anaphylactic, remember to keep in mind that a patient's condition can worsen over time and because there's a potential for airway compromise, you should ensure that paramedics are en route. All right, now let's talk about the patient who is in psychogenic shock. Psychogenic shock is basically someone fainting. When the patient finally collapses and is now supine, the body will restore itself and the blood supply to the brain is also restored. Now, psychogenic shock can worsen other types of shock, Also, a person may sustain a injury because they fainted and they collapsed and possibly injured themselves. So you're gonna definitely need to take a look for other injuries and this is very true for our older patients. Despite this being a uncomplicated fainting spell, patients who suffer from a psychogenic shock episode should be transported to the emergency department. Okay, now I know you've been waiting for this one Treatment of the hypovolemic shock, probably the most common shock that you will go on in your career as an EMT and paramedic. All right, control all obvious external bleeding. Handle the patient gently and keep him or her warm. Recognize internal bleeding and provide aggressive general support. Secure and maintain an airway and provide respiratory support as necessary. Transport the patient as rapidly as possible to the emergency room. And that is it, not a whole lot behind that. Okay, we're gonna now talk about treating respiratory insufficiency. We're gonna immediately secure and maintain the airway. We're gonna clear the mouth and throat of any obstructions including mucus, vomitus, and other foreign materials. If necessary, we're gonna provide ventilations with the BVM. We're gonna administer supplemental oxygen and transport the patient promptly. That is all we can do with respiratory inefficiency. Okay, as we conclude this lecture, let's talk about the older patient. Older patients generally have more serious complications than younger patients. Sometimes our older population have numerous illnesses, as well as our older patients will sometimes take medications that can mask or mimic signs of shock. Treating a pediatric or geriatric patient in shock is no different than treating any other shock patient. so Just remember that. Let's cover some key points. Provide inline spinal immobilization if indicated. If spinal immobilization is not indicated, maintain the patient in a position of comfort. Control life-threatening hemorrhage immediately with direct pressure or tourniquet application when appropriate. Suction as necessary and provide high-flow oxygen via a non-rebular mask maintain body temperature, and rapid transport to the hospital. As you can see, see nothing is really different with the pediatric or geriatric patient. So we want to remember that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our lecture on shock. Don't forget to leave any stars, comments, feedback that allow this podcast to rise to the top of the charts. And also don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The EMT Tutor our website, the public safety guru. And if you feel inclined to help us financially support this podcast and you want to get access to access to exclusive content, then head on over to our Patreon channel and join and you'll get exclusive access to a lot of cool resources. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for Chris, the public safety guru. Once again, good luck and happy EMT.